Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jason Franklin. I'm the Executive Director of Boulder Giving. I'm thrilled to have you join us for this first Bold Conversation of 2015. Um, and today we're talking about developing philanthropic resolutions. How do you want to change up your giving in 2015, and what might that look like? Uh, just before we launch in, a couple things about logistics. So we have a question and answer window that is showing right below the uh, video screen. Please feel free at any time throughout the entire hour, type in your questions if you want me to talk a little bit more about something, if there's something not coming up that you're interested in hearing more about. Uh, really encourage your questions, and I will be taking them as we go uh, throughout the entire hour, but I will pause several times throughout and ask for your suggestions. If you're worried about your own anonymity in asking questions, you can feel free to just note in your question that comes in on the Q&A box that you would not like me to say your name, or you can text your uh, question to me as well. And I know several people who are joining us have my cell phones to have that ready. We are recording the conversation. It will be available uh, live uh, next week on our website, as are all of our past build conversations. Um, so for now, let's just dive in and talk about philanthropic resolutions. When we came up with this idea uh, last December, at the beginning of the month, it was in the midst of thinking about the craziness of year-end giving and trying to think about you know, just getting through things. And I started to talk to people about the burden of year-end giving that several donors who were calling me said it felt more like an obligation than like anything fun. And I said, well, how would you change that to make it more fun? How would you get more connected to the groups you're supporting? And they all said, well, I'll deal with that in January. Maybe that'll be, and someone said, maybe that'll be my New Year's resolution, which gave spark to this. So even though I'm finding it hard to remember the ball dropping, it feels like so much has happened in January already. Um, I still think there's time for us all to pause and think about how might our how might we make changes in our giving this year? How might we do better? How might we give better? How might we inspire other people? And how might we get more connected and excited about the philanthropy that we're engaged in? Um, I also did a little bit of research getting ready for today's conversation and was looking at some of the neuroscience and behavioral science and psychology around resolutions and habit changing. And thought it was interesting. Did you know that 50% of Americans make New Year's resolutions, but only 8% of people who do actually follow through with them? So think about that. Half of us make a resolution. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to get ahead on my email. I'm going to spend more time with my family. But only 8% of us actually keep up with those resolutions that we make. And the brain scientists and psychologists who studied resolutions and pattern making and habit making have actually figured out that there's some real reasons why we don't stick with our resolutions. So resolutions require a lot of willpower. And willpower, I learned, is managed by your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain right up here near your forehead. And that making big or vague resolutions actually puts 
too much burden on our prefrontal cortex. It's, they said it's a too great a cognitive load to be able to manage, and so we end up skipping them or ignoring them. And that it's, it's kind of like one um, article I read, it's kind of like changing big ingrained habits is like going to the gym and starting to lift heavy weights first without any training. You actually have to build up endurance in your brain, just like you have to build up endurance in your body and make resolutions that your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that manages willpower, can handle. And there were a bunch of different res uh, tips on how do we then keep resolutions, which when I read in the context of philanthropy seemed to me to make a lot of sense. So five things that we do that, or five things we should change about our resolutions so we can actually keep them. Don't make multiple resolutions. If we make too many different resolutions simultaneously, our brains get overloaded, our lives get overloaded, and we don't keep any of them. So making a single resolution at a time, it makes it much more likely to actually carry through. Being specific. So I'm going to get in shape. Not as specific a resolution as I'm going to lose five pounds. I'm going to go to the gym three times a week, which I resolved and have already broken. But We'll keep going. Um, setting a goal that's completely under your own control is another interesting one that I'll come back to in a minute when we talk about our philanthropy, but I hadn't thought about. Setting, losing 50 pounds, using one that is always on my mind, uh, several scientists said, actually not under your control. Going to the gym or eating healthy or not eating sugar, those are things under your control, but actually how fast your body loses weight is not something you have complete control over. You have control over the actions that influence how your body will behave. Uh, also, making a resolution that's manageable, one that you can handle that doesn't require uh, a complete overturning of everything in your life, and making a resolution that is compatible with the rest of your life. So if you say, I'm going to finish my dissertation, which I thankfully did back in 2013, but if you're going to finish your resolution, your dissertation by writing five hours a day and you don't have five hours a day in your life to dedicate it to, the resolution is not compatible with your life. I think we see similar dynamics happen in giving, that people make resolutions to be the best donor they can be, to be the best funder or ally that we can be, and yet we don't acknowledge the realities of our own life and what we really have the capacity to do. So wide range of things that come up. Um, when I was thinking through the resolutions, when I was thinking through ways that I hear people want to change their behavior, they really end up, most of the time, falling into five general categories, I think. We see people, I hear people all the time tell me, I want to be more generous. I want to give better or more strategically. I want to take more risks with my giving. I want to involve others or change the power dynamics of my giving in some way. I want to inspire others to give. All five of those are bad resolutions. The intent is good, but none of them work as an actual resolution because they're all too big, too vague, and too overwhelming. We can't be just being more generous. You're either automatically succeeded because you did anything more than you did last year, which isn't really your intent or you've automatically failed by not being able to live up to some vague aspiration that you couldn't get to. Um, what do we mean when we say, I want to give better? 
or I want to involve others. Well, who? Why? For what purpose? Making the right resolution to take a next step in our giving requires us to be a little bit more specific. Um, so what I thought I would do in this next you know, 20, 30 minutes of conversation especially is to talk through these big five, the ideas of being more generous, of giving better or more strategically, taking risks with your giving, involving others in your giving, and inspiring others to give. And what might it look like to make a philanthropic resolution tied to any of these? I do welcome you again to enter your questions or your comments or reactions into the Q&A box below the video screen at any time as I'm kind of talking through these. would love to have your reactions and thoughts. Um, but first, let's do a quick little poll. So the little hands up sign that you can see right above the video screen, the little person raising his hand, if you click on it, um, to agree, the little green check mark, did, did you make a philanthropic resolution this year? Did you make a resolution to change your giving in any way? Go ahead and click agree if you did. And click disagree if you have not. So we've got, looks about 25% of people so far have responded. I'll wait just a moment more for others to find that little upraised hand icon right above the video screen and select, did you make a philanthropic resolution this year or not? Okay, so we've got most people have um, signed in and it looks like we've got about two-thirds of the participants you know, on our call right now have made resolutions. Um, if you're willing to share your resolutions, please feel free to type them into the Q&A box. I won't share your name tied to them, but we'd love to hear some of the resolutions you have made. Um, and several people haven't yet. So hopefully, whether you've already made a resolution, figuring out how to make it stick, or whether you're still trying to figure out what it might look like, or you're talking to other people about their giving. I hope this will be useful for you. So in terms of being more generous, obviously no surprise, this is one of the biggest things we hear about and talk to people about at Boulder Giving. People who come to us and say, you know, I want to give more, I should give more, I feel like I could give more, how do I do that? And I said, well, pick a concrete goal the best way to move yourself forward, and that you don't have to get it right, right away. That philanthropy is not about being perfect, it's about being generous. It's about giving, and the best way we learn is by doing. So some of the ideas I would suggest as a possible resolutions you could do, you could make to be more generous. You might pledge to give 10% more than you gave last year. So for wherever you are, if you gave $100 last year, if you gave a million dollars last year, what would it like to give 10% more or 5% more or 50% more? But to pick a concrete number, it gives you the measurement that you need to know if you've gotten there, and you can track your progress along the way. Um, we're actually looking and exploring right now the possibility of launching a Give Plus 10 campaign. Um, so working on thinking it through and also figuring out how to fund it but a widespread campaign to invite people to make a pledge to give 10% more. If that's something that res uh, resonates with you, 
I invite you to reach out afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, actually, I see somebody has just said their resolution is to give 10% of their income to organizations in their area of interest. So I think that's great, and I hope that res uh, resonates for other people. Another way you can be more generous is with one specific gift. What would it look like to make one gift significantly bigger than you've ever done before? When I'm talking to families with wealth, I often say, what if you added a zero? The biggest gift you ever gave was $10,000. What would it be like? What would it take to give a $100,000 gift? Maybe you do that as a one-time three-year gift. Maybe you could do it without even noticing. What would it be like to go from $100 to a $1,000 gift for the first time ever? The time and energy you'd spend to pick that one group that would get that big gift will be really valuable. You'll learn a lot about your own priorities and your own approaches to change when you think about who would you entrust with the biggest gift you've ever made. So another resolution gets very specific, just a single gift, but you'd really have to think about it and engage differently to do it. Um, another thing I've done, which has been really valuable in my life over the last few years, is I've set aside a percent of my giving. I now set aside 20% of my budget for my giving budget to just say yes. So I call that my impulse fund, and I do two things out of it. One is when friends reach out and say, hey, I'm running the AIDS walk, or I'm walking in the um, running in the breast cancer marathon, will you support me? I have money set aside to support my friends and not to think about, is this the very best medical cause? Is this nonprofit the one that's the most critical? But I'm thrilled to see my friends engage in the world, and I want to support them. But I also get too many people asking me for money. I don't have enough money to support them all with huge gifts. So I'm able to say, you know what? I would love to support you. And here is $25 because I've set aside funds to support my friends in the work they're doing. And it takes it from how much am I giving to my friend to saying, I have money to support my friends. And this is what I do for all of my friends when they reach out to me. The other great thing about setting aside that money to make a resolution to set aside money to say yes is, and the reason I call it my impulse fund, I have money in my budget to just say yes in the moment. I go to an amazing event and there's an inspiring speaker talking about the work they're doing. And I'm like, oh. I want to help, I want to support, and I can say yes in that moment without challenging myself of where does this fit in my giving plan, how does it fit with the rest of the groups I support, what do I know about the organization, or if I see a disaster has happened in the world, I want to respond, or I see somebody who's homeless, I want to help them in that moment. Any of those experiences we all get throughout the entire year of wanting to help and then catching ourselves stopping ourselves and saying, maybe I can't, maybe I can't afford it, we would have to give way. You don't have to do big gifts on that side, but setting aside money in advance to let yourself experience the thrill of just saying yes, giving in to the generous impulse without too much analysis, I think really brings a lot back to us. There's a certain human connection that happens with our giving that can be really amazing. And so to... Set, make your resolution to set aside a part of your budget to just say yes could be the way you bring more generosity into your life this year. You might also, I talk especially with um, older couples or individuals who are thinking about their estate plans. 
although all of us should have an estate plan and a will do better, how young and old we are, but who told me about the exciting gifts they're planning to make after they pass away. You know, I was just talking last month with a couple who have been really excited. They have figured out they're both in their 80s. They have just set up to give their home to an organization that they have been involved in as volunteers. The organization doesn't know. They've been giving to the organization like $50 a year. They've been active volunteers for 20 years, and they're preparing to give them $250,000, roughly, the value of their home. And I said, why not do it now? And they looked at me like I was crazy because that's where they live. You can't give away your home and not have a place to live. I said, you absolutely can. You can create a charitable trust, put your home into it, and make the gift now and live in your home for the rest of your life. And But the charity can know now that that money is coming. And you can also experience the joy of making the gift while you're still alive, to engage with the organization in the time that you have to help them think about where do they use that money? How does it help them grow? Or if you're leaving bequests and it's excess capital beyond your home or the money you need for your retirement or the money you need for your child's education or any of other needs that we have for our financial resources, I always encourage people to think about, can you give now rather than later? Can you give during your lifetime or can you at least Share your commitment and your intention to make these gifts with the groups now. You get a huge amount of joy from that chance to actually experience it, not to know that will happen after you have passed away. And you get the chance to help organizations think in early about how do they grow. They, organizations can do better planning when they know resources are coming to them or get through tough times or take advantage of new opportunities when the resources are there now. So maybe you want to resolve to be more generous by changing the timing of your giving. Sit down with your estate planner, sit down with your, your estate attorney, your financial planner, and figure out how much could you give today instead of when you pass away. And then probably the most challenging, but a regular question in, for people who are thinking about being more generous is, is there something you want to give up so that you could give more away? And that could be something small. You're going to stop picking up a Starbucks coffee every morning. Everyone always picks on Starbucks for these resolutions. But stop getting your morning coffee and make coffee. You're going to stop eating out one night a week so you can save money. We often do that for savings. If you're not worried about your savings, you might do it for your giving. Um, it could also be much bigger. You could resolve to move into a smaller house. You could resolve to not take trips. You know, there's lots of different ways that simplicity can come up as a resolution and be tied to your giving. Um, if this is an area that interests you, I hope you'll join us next month where actually our bold conversation is going to be focusing and exploring on this idea of simplicity and simple living and giving. And what does it look like to make those trade-offs around consumption versus philanthropy? And it means different things for each of us. But it's definitely an area that's ripe for resolutions as we start a new year. So another one that I hear from people, another area I hear from people around how they want to change their giving is they want to give better or they want to give more strategically. And I don't think it'll be surprised to you that I would say giving better is not a good resolution because you have to define what does better mean for you. Giving more strategically still is not 
enough of a clear resolution to really act upon. That's a broad intention rather than an action you can take. So some ideas you might look at on how to give better or how to give more strategically might be to develop a written giving plan. Have you taken the time to sit down? I, when I first started to do a giving plan, I got totally overwhelmed. I was involved in a group called Resource Generation, which is for young people with wealth or privilege who want to engage in social change. Went to a giving plan workshop that they put on. I had a big workbook, and I had the most amazing book, Inspired Philanthropy by Tracy Gary, one of our bold givers, which I highly recommend. And I opened them up, and I got totally overwhelmed, and I closed them back down because it was way too much for me. Um, and I say that not because I want to give you permission not to get it perfect. You don't have to make a perfect giving plan to leave up to a resolution. But can you write down on one page the groups that you will give to and why? How much money will you give? To which groups or issues? How will you make your decisions? These days, I have actually... Now, engaged with that giving plan process, I've gone back to the uh, Inspired Philanthropy and Tracy's book. I do have a giving plan. At one point, it was up to 18 pages. It really helped me to think through all of the details, and then I realized afterwards I wasn't following it or looking at it. Now, every year, I try to come back and look at my three-page giving plan, which for me is enough detail to keep as a set of guiding principles. So to figure out how much works for you. I have another friend, though, her giving plan is 26 pages long. She looks at it every quarter, and it is really valuable. The way she thinks and plans is to write and to develop really detailed plans and write them all out helps her be really effective and accountable to the intentions that she has. But writing a giving plan of any length is an incredibly valuable experience. And if you're looking for jump starts, you can find in the Boulder Giving Workbook on our website and find in Tracy's book, Inspired Philanthropy, some great tools and resources. And just know that as you start doing it, you don't have to do all of it. But start writing some things down, and it will push you. You don't have to come back to it every week. Just write it down. The act of writing and thinking it through will make your giving better. It will force you to make some of the strategic decisions that you can't give to everything. It doesn't matter how much money you have. So which things will you give to? How will you decide? How will you prioritize? Those are the type of questions that you'll develop in a giving plan. Another resolution you might make is to have five conversations with five people you respect about your giving. Really measured, easy. I'm going to talk to my mother, my husband, my best friend who runs a nonprofit. You're going to call Jason because I'm here for you. Um, whatever people you want to reach out to and ask for their support, are there five people you could talk to over the next year, not the next month, the next year, to figure out where you're headed with your giving? And that you actually, and then you don't just slip it into the conversation either. Reach out to those people and say, hey, I've made a resolution to try to give better this year, and in order to do that, I want to have conversations with people I respect. Could I take you out for a cup of tea sometime and talk to you about my giving and the thinking about it and what I'm looking at? And just get their reactions. You'll be amazed by how much you'll learn in the course of five conversations over the next 12 months. Another specific one, could you say no to one group? Is there a group that you have been giving to for a while that you're no longer feeling connected to? 
that doesn't fit your new priorities, but you have kind of left them in the mix? Or is there a group that you've lost faith in, but have been afraid to step away? That sometimes, just like with our rest of our behaviors, we get into habits. And you always give to this group because you always gave to that group. But if it doesn't resonate today, if it doesn't excite you, if you don't believe that your gift to them is the best gift you could make, maybe it's time to say no. And I would say you get bonus points if you actually tell the organization why you're saying no. It's really hard feedback to give, but it's really valuable feedback to receive. To tell a group, you know, I, I love your work. It's just I'm going, I've really gotten committed to racial justice work after Ferguson and Eric Ward and all of the mobilization happening today, and that's where I'm putting all my energy. Then they know that you're moving on, not because you don't like them, but because you've got something else tugging at your heart. On the flip side, if you've lost faith in their work, you can be clear and say, this is what isn't working anymore. And they can know that there's either problems of reality or perception that they need to fix. And if nobody tells groups that type of information, they never get the chance to fix it. Um, and then finally, two other suggestions around giving better that I think can really help you be a best kind of donor ally possible. On the flip side of saying no to a group, if there's a group you love, if there's a group you think is the most effective, is really moving forward, how about making a multi-year commitment to them? If you give them $2,000 every year, how about you commit to give them $6,000 over the next three years? If you're a $20,000 donor, what if you did $100,000 over the next five years? To lock in that type of pledge, big or small, lets the organization know they can plan on your money being there. They have some committed money to start out every year. And the more multi-year pledges they have, the more stable they are and the more you know, risk-taking they can be because they know they've got that base of support locked in. I think you'll also find if you do it, you get to have a different type of conversation with the organization. Because when you engage with them, you're, they're not coming back to say, hey, we want to ask you for your, a gift again, a gift again, a gift again. They know you're there. They know you're supporting them. And they can tell you what's going on. How are they trying to change? And they can be a little bit more vulnerable and tell you what's not working because your commitment is already there for them to know they've got the space to be honest because it won't jeopardize your renewal. Um, similarly, is there a group that you love that you give to one program that they run? What about removing the restrictions on your gift? To say, I love the program you're running, but I love all the work you're doing. And I'm going to take off the restrictions, and this is now for anything you think you need. We actually had a wonderful moment last year. One of our longtime supporters here at Boulder Giving, who had supported for several years our environmental justice initiative, and I always thought that that was what kept him connected to Boulder Giving, was the work that we're doing to inspire donors around the environment, because that's a real core passion of his. We were talking, and he said, actually, I just love the work you're doing overall. So... You can take our, my gift from my foundation and use it for anything at Boulder Giving. And it was such a wonderful vote of confidence from him and from his foundation, and also a really wonderful gift for us and for me as the ED of a small organization. I got to move that money to be unrestricted and fill in whatever budget gaps. We're still doing our environmental work as one of the many issue areas we look at, but I get more flexibility in how to allocate those resources because he said, take my gift for Boulder Giving overall. 
It's a wonderful gift you can make to an organization completely separate from changing the amount that you give. So a third area um, that I hear all the time is I want to take more risks. I want to be bolder in the ways that I give. Um, but again, taking more risks, not specific enough. How could you be specific in being a risk taker and a courageous giver? Um, you might say that you're just going to give to ideas. We get very tied up in the due diligence of, is this group ready? Are they going to be effective? Have they proven their model? But you know, sometimes the best and riskiest ideas have not proven their model. They're not ready. They don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And that's part of what they need support for, is to figure it all out. So if you meet an amazing entrepreneur who has an idea to change the world, maybe you're just giving to support the entrepreneur, giving to support the idea, and taking the risk that they'll figure it out. And if they don't, at least they've tried. At least you supported that attempt. You know, Ruth Ann Harnish, who's one of our bold givers, her foundation has done this really interesting partnership with the Awesome Foundation, the goal of giving small grants to awesome projects, people who have ideas to change the world, big, small, their local neighborhood, the entire globe, and small gifts to say, yeah, we believe in you. We're going to support you. Go forth. That's awesome. Um, you can read more about Ruth Ann's story on our site, but it's just one example of the way you could jump in and take an idea and support an idea and be a risk taker. You might also decide to give to a task or a cause that feels too big. Give to the urgent and overwhelming tasks that you know need our support and that you are not going to be able to solve, but that you can jump in and be part. Now, I think the Ebola crisis in Africa is one of the you know, real recent big examples that just did not get enough support. That people said, oh, Ebola, that's so far away. It's in Africa. You know, there was the brief flurry when there was a few Americans infected in the United States, but it was really focused on the Americans here rather than the crisis that is continuing and has fallen off the media radar in Africa. Um, but what would it look like to take a risk and be one among many, to not be the most important, to not know if your gift would solve the problem, but to say, this is critical and I need to do what I can. Um, Jim Greenbaum from the Greenbaum Foundation is a new bold giver. We're working actually on his story now. But he has been just an inspiration to me in these last few months looking at after the Ebola crisis broke out, he jumped in and said, how can I help? What can I do what can, with my money, my networks, my time? He created a website called Act Against Ebola, Act Now Against Ebola. He's mobilized other donors. He's jumped in to give to support the efforts that other people have started and just said, I'm going to try it. We don't know which solution will work. We don't know which is the best organization, but we need to jump in now while we can still turn the tide of this crisis. So taking the risk is to jump in before the strategy and the way is clear, to be part of the solution creation process instead of just funding the solution that's been identified. You might also give to something that's controversial, that you believe in if your family doesn't, that you would be, you know, you might take the risk of making your name public for something that is more controversial or political because names have power and you're identifying with something gives it a credibility within your community. 
So an area, an example here is around the recent racial justice mobilizations. So you might think about, you know, what can you do to fund racial justice work in the United States? Um, we actually were approached a couple months ago by the Neighborhood Funders Group and Women Donors Network that have helped put together a new site, Funders for Justice, and launched a pledge, uh, a racial justice funding pledge that now a whole wide network of donor communities and funder affinity groups have all joined in to share with their members. Boulder Giving is um, a participant in this that invites individual donors and foundations to commit to funding racial justice work. And that part of that is not only to commit to fund it, but to share your name publicly as somebody who's doing so. So what would it look like if you signed on to the Funders for Justice pledge? What if you changed some of your giving to take a risk on funding justice, racial justice work? And it's not just racial justice. There's dozens of other issues you could pick. But to take a step out of the safe gifts into ones that are more controversial, to the place you believe and are hesitant to go. How would it change your giving if you did that? I'd also say that the last two ways around taking more risks with your giving is you might think about being the lead donor, making the first gift for a new fundraising campaign. When you're not sure that it's going to be going, when you're going to be forced to be more public, it's always hard for organizations to find the lead gifts and the naming gifts and the first gifts when they're trying to start something new. And that if you believe in the work, jump in before you're convinced. Jump in before everyone else has. Because when you jump in, when you make that first gift, you make it easier for others to follow along. And that's a bold and courageous way to do your giving. Similarly, to give to the new group, not just the new campaign. Um, to help seed the new organizing, to help seed the new community service that is being offered. Um, you're not sure if the group is ready. You're not sure if they have their finances in order. They might not have an audit done. They might not have a full board all put together. But you see that the need is great, that the soup kitchen in that neighborhood that doesn't have one is needed, that the organizing for those communities that don't have a voice is needed. And giving the first gift, saying, I believe in you, I'll support you, help get it started, is a real risky move. It could fail. The organization could fall apart. The campaign could not go anywhere. But you won't know until you try. So what would it look like to set aside some money in your giving this year to make the first gift to a new organization? So I've got two more here um, around involving other people and around inspiring others to give. And I'll get dive into those in just a moment. But I do want to make sure to invite you to you know, share any of your questions what are you thinking about for your giving this year? What are the possibilities you're exploring or the questions that are coming up? Um, I actually do see here somebody else who said that um, their resolution is to take the racial justice funding pledge. So that's great. I'm excited to see that happen as well. Um, in terms of involving others in your giving, this can look a lot of different ways. Involving your family, involving your friends, involving your community turning over some of the power you have as a donor to others, all different variations, but none of those, again, are specific enough to really work as a resolution. You want to think now one thing you're going to change and make it something measurable that you can know you can do it and you can check it off afterwards and hold yourself accountable 
to that goal. So you might, you know, in terms of family, I think the biggest, not failure, but the different, biggest challenge I see with many people and hear from many people about their giving is that it's, they do it just, like, oh, well, I'll talk with my family. I really believe you need to set aside dedicated time to engage with your family. Don't talk to your family about your giving over dinner. Or don't do it as the primary way to engage them if you haven't already engaged them in your philanthropy. Please talk to your family about your giving over dinner, over lunch, share them the details, email them the groups. But if you really want to engage them, say, I'd like to have a conversation about my giving, our giving. You know, if you're parents, you tell your kids, I, we, your father or mother and I would love to sit down with you and talk about the giving we're doing and get your ideas. Tell people in advance the topic you want to bring up, the framing of it, so that way when you all sit down, which could still be over a meal, but you've said in advance, this is why we're, what we're going to be talking about tonight. It gives people the chance to really be present and ready to have that conversation with you, and it makes it clear that you're going to have that conversation, so you're not going to you know, slip away halfway through dinner when conversations go in a different direction, or... If you bring it up and you don't give a great reaction, you're like, oh, well, I tried. If you said this is what we're going to talk about at dinner, people will tend to stay with you. They'll ask you more questions. You'll get a deeper conversation. So frame the invitation in advance to talk to your family. Um, similarly, you might set aside some money for your family to give, whether it's you want to let your kids give some of the money that you would otherwise allocate, whether it's you want to put a pot that says, I'd like to get our whole family to agree on where to make this gift. And on this front, I tend to encourage, especially if this is a new experience for your family, make it a big enough pot of money that everyone will take it seriously, but a small enough pot that you don't, that you'll be okay if it doesn't go to the group you would have picked. That part of the experience of giving with a family or giving with others is the collective decision-making process, and you want to walk the fine line of big enough to make it important, small enough that you don't have to control it, that you feel comfortable letting it go wherever everybody decides it should move, even if it's not the place you would have picked. And again, you don't have to do it perfectly. The best thing to do is to try it, because you'll learn what works best with your own family, learn what works best for you personally, and don't say up front that we're going to start doing this every year. Tell people you'd like to try an experiment and have them do it with you once. And then see what, what the experience is like for you. You can decide to keep going, but you don't need to commit to keep going up front. You might also invite you know, three friends or three activists or ten friends or ten activists, but pick a number and say, I'd like to have you know, three friends who I trust talk to about my giving with me. I'll share numbers with them, I'll share my strategy, get their feedback. Or I'll have three activists that I know in the community. Um, if you're going down that route, be prepared for you know, the uncomfortable moments if you're asking somebody with a different, from a different class background or financial position to be with you in giving away money, what that could look like. Um, happy to talk one-on-one -on -one with anybody who's thinking about going down that route or connect you to other resources. But you can get some really powerful insights from those who are closer to the work that you're supporting. Uh, you just have to get ready for a different type of conversation to engage with them on.
You might also join a giving circle. There are hundreds of giving circles across the country, giving circles in communities of color, Jewish giving circles, women's giving circles, LGBT giving circles, giving circles for local neighborhoods, for the environment, for economic development, for education. Whatever excites you, if it's a part of your own identity, if it's the geography, if it's the issue, that you might do some of your giving by joining a circle of other people who are all putting in money and then deciding to give away together. Um, for me, this last year, I joined a giving circle called the High Impact Documentary Funding Circle. It's a funding circle within the Threshold Foundation. And I did it because my only expo exposure to documentaries is that I go see them. I said, I know nothing about documentaries, but I'd like to learn. So I joined the Giving Circle as a space to learn more about Giving Circles. And you can find some great examples and get connected to the various communities out there with a website we have called givingcommunities.org, which lets you put in information about yourself and get recommendations on the donor networks and donor communities that might be a match for you. And lastly, you might decide the best way to support your community or support an issue is to make a gift to a regranting organization. Make a gift to the community foundation. Make a gift to a public foundation that funds in the area that you care about. Uh, they are often more connected to more organizations, have a better sense of the landscape of groups working in your community or on your issue than the time any of us have personally as individual donors to learn the landscape. So I, for example, in, live in New York City, and I have given and been involved for years with the North Star Fund, which funds community organizing across the five boroughs of New York. The staff at North Star, it's their full-time job to know and to keep on top of seeing who is doing organizing in New York, which are the new and emerging groups, and they engage activists in the decision-making so activists from all over the city who know their peers are the ones deciding how they allocate their money. So I see one of the best ways I can support organizing in New York is rather than finding all of the groups myself, I make a gift to North Star. And that's how I fulfill a big part of my commitment and my giving plan to give for change in New York City. Check, I make my gift to North Star and entrust them to move the money to the best places possible. So that can be a way to move your money differently uh, and share power with other people to make the decisions about what your giving could look like. And lastly, um, wouldn't, I wouldn't be the ED of Boulder Giving if I didn't talk a little bit about how could you inspire other people to give and how could you make that a resolution uh, for 2015. Um, but the first one is a small resolution that I don't think any of us do often enough. What would it look like to resolve that you're going to write a letter or write an email to your favorite group or your favorite three groups and tell them why you gave them a gift? It's really simple. You know, Dear Jason, I love your curls, therefore I'm giving you a gift to Boulder Giving. No, kidding. Not the reason. Um, but why do you make one group your biggest recipient of your gifts every year? You may feel like you've told the ED at a conversation. You may feel like you've discussed it with the development director or major gifts officer who calls you. Um, but it's always wonderful as an organizational leader to get a letter or to get an email that says, this is what I love about you. This is the why you inspire me. This is the 
work that you do that I think is particularly important, um, it's both a morale boost and it also is an incredible resource for leaders to then say, you know, one of our donors just told us this. It might be why you'd also want us to support us. Your direct writing of why you think a group is important can be a way to inspire others and a tool that the organization can use to inspire others to join you in supporting them. Um, and it's a great and easy thing you can do that doesn't cost you any more money. But you don't have to stretch your budget if you can't stretch your budget. You just take a few minutes to write a letter or write an email. Um, you might also think about if you've been an anonymous giver, be more public to let the organization use your name. And that doesn't mean to necessarily put your name on the website or to now name the building after you. But it could also be that to tell the ED that in one-on-one -on -one conversations with key donors, they could say that you are a supporter. It might mean that you tell your friends that you're a supporter. That I hear all the time from people, oh, no one cares about me. It doesn't matter if I'm anonymous or not. But it matters to your friends. It matters to your coworkers. It matters to the people who know and respect you. And it's just the dynamics of being a person in the world and having friendships and relationships is that we influence those who know us. And so the moments where you're willing to be public can be an act of service. Sharing your story can be an act of service. Um, and so to think about where could you be a little bit more public in ways that feel, still feel comfortable that could inspire others to discover the groups that you love and the, re the issues that you care about and get more insight into why you fund the groups that you do. Why do you support specific causes? You, can't, you will be a better authority when you talk to friends at a cocktail party about why climate change is critical. If you say, you know, I think climate change is so important that I'm supporting the Rainforest Action Network or I'm supporting this group or that group. Your words carry more weight when they are people know you back up your words with your actions and your money. Alternately, um, and this is just a, more of a personal experiment, what would it look like to actually give anonymously for a little while? Have you fallen into a dynamic of really caring about the recognition that you get from your giving? What if you resolved to give anonymously for the next three months or to give anonymously for the entire year? How would it change your perceptions of yourself? How would it change your relationships to others? To make that type of resolution and then to really be cognizant and reflective about what it brings up, of how the reactions change, um, can be an interesting personal discovery experience to try out anonymity for a while if you haven't already. You might also be deliberate about sharing your story with your family and friends, with your coworkers, with your networks that you're part of. I got a wonderful Christmas card from an old college classmate who I haven't actually talked to in you know, more than a decade. But he sent out an email to a bunch of people, and one of the things he talked about, in addition to you know, his new baby girl and the fact that he and his family were moving, we talked about the two groups that they were giving to this year and why they picked those two groups. Um, it was great to read. You know, they are not actually groups that fit for me. They were both local in Texas where he is living. Um, 
but I was delighted to read about them. And actually, a couple weeks later, somebody was asking me about groups in Texas. I said, well, I don't know a whole lot about the groups in Texas, but I did just hear from a friend about these two groups. And so whether, that, whether people made new gifts because of it, he shared in a Christmas letter, which I then read and handed off to somebody else, something he could never expect or predict would happen by being a little bit more deliberate about sharing the groups that he gave to with other people that were, he knew. You know, maybe you invite friends out for a philanthropy brunch. Say, I'd love to get together with everyone, and the discussion prompt to start us off for brunch is, everyone come ready to talk about one nonprofit group you love in the world. And then it can just go into regular brunch, catching up with friends. But what a great icebreaker prompt. And it'll force you to talk about one group and learn about some of the, what your friends care about. So thinking about concrete ways you could share your giving decisions and your giving with other people. And then a last one that I have to offer up. If you are a bold giver yourself, if you're giving a big percent of your income, your assets, your business profits, if you're taking big risks with your giving, we are always looking for people to volunteer to share their stories as bold givers. Um, we have over 150 stories in our library now. We're working on many more as we speak. Um, but each time someone is willing to share their story as a bold giver, to let us interview them, write their story, put it out into the world. I travel all over the country and around the world talking to individual donors and families about what's possible with their giving and share the stories of our bold givers. And I'm always looking for more because I never know which community I'm going to and which story will connect. Um, so if, you, if you're there, if you're already a bold giver, if you're already giving big, if you're already taking risks and you haven't been public, you know, please shoot me an email, jason at bouldergiving.org, or call us at 646-678-4394, um, and let us know that you'd be willing to share your story, because we really are always looking for those opportunities, and that can be a way you can multiply the impact of your giving just by letting your story be told. So I do see we're coming up towards the end of the hour. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like to um, ask before we wrap up, please do write them in into the Q&A section. Um, as I mentioned, next month we're going to be doing our bold conversation exploring issues of simplicity and giving and how does the living, the decisions about your lifestyle and your day-to-day -day expenses impact the possibilities for your philanthropy. Um, so I see one question come up. Um, one possible resolution, not yet made, I have, is to possibly make and follow a giving plan. Could you tell us again about your three groups, including the 20% for impulse giving that you already mentioned? Absolutely. Um, so one of my kind of rules of thumb for being a good giver, um, what I've developed for myself is what I call the 50-30-20 rule. So 50% of my giving goes to the top two or three groups that I'm most deeply committed to. Um, right now, those are all organizations where I serve on the board or I'm a deeply involved volunteer. So they are the places where I'm part of the leadership, I'm investing my time outside of work, and I really want to see the work move forward. But when I first started it, it was just with the intention of not giving the same to everybody, but to pick the groups I thought were the most powerful, learn more about them, and give more to them. 
And I realized I didn't have the time to learn more about all of them. And I didn't have the money to give more to all of them. So setting aside 50% of my giving just for one to three groups really forced me to focus and in let me engage more deeply with those groups. Then 30% of my giving is my kind of community and obligation fund. That is to the groups that I know, that is to uh, ones that I've been connected to but may not be as engaged now, groups that I just give to each year because I believe they're important, um, groups that you know my best friend is on the board here or my parents are really involved over here. The mid-level groups, I know for many people that can include your alma mater or the, your children's school, your church, the local art museum, places that you're either active or a, a member of, they, if they're not in your top three, but you still want to be giving to them to put them into that second pool of 30%. And then that final pool of 20%. And for some people, that's too big. Some people do 5% or 10%. I have found that partly because of my work being so active out in the world of social change, having 20% set aside for impulse to just say yes has been really brought the joy back into my giving. I found over the years that I was too highly planned and it started to feel like a burden and bringing back an impulse fund gave me that wonderful moment of like, yes, I love it, I'll support you. Without having to pause and think and plan, I can just say yes. So a 50-30-20 rule is a, another way that you can think about dividing your money into different buckets for giving with different intentions behind each one of them. Um, so with that said, I don't see other questions coming in right now, so I'm going to go ahead and let us wrap a little early. Again, my name is Jason Franklin. I'm the Executive Director of Boulder Giving, and this has been our January Bold Conversation about philanthropic resolutions. And if there's any questions that have come up for you or you'd like to talk more about your own personal giving, please do feel free to reach out to us. Uh, my email address is jason at bouldergiving.org, or you can go on to our website, bouldergiving.org and find a lot of different materials and resources to support you. Um, givingcommunities.org, another re resource I mentioned today about connecting you to individual donor communities and donor networks. Um, and we're happy to be a resource to help you think about the next steps in your own philanthropy. But until then, have a great rest of the month, and we'll see you next month. Bye-bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.